you shall not commit adultery. Five words which at, at face value seem relatively simple and straightforward and uncomplicated and yet, and I was so aware as I was doing some preparation for this, so aware that the issues that lie behind those five words are incredibly complex. And as you can appreciate, it's virtually impossible to cover everything that really possibly should be said in a space of 20 minutes. So again, I'm asking for your forgiveness. Uh, There will be some people feel there's too much emphasis in a particular direction. Some people feel here you didn't mention this particular issue, uh, but... That's part of what the uh, conversation is all about. And please do, as I say, speak to me afterwards if you think we, we got something wrong. By definition, adultery is extramarital sex. It is sex between someone who is married with someone who is not their spouse. And that can range from the casual fling to a long-term affair. And, and so whenever you come to this commandment, you are invited to, you're almost forced to reflect on two God-given gifts. We've got to talk about sex and marriage. And I mean, I've already spoke to a number of parents who have kids out there. I'm not going to say anything inappropriate, so please, I don't want anybody to be nervous. But I do think it's fair to say, without being accused of over-exaggeration, that we live in a society that is preoccupied with sex, or certainly very, very interested in it. Sexual images and innuendo and advice bombard us on a daily basis. Advertisers use it to market their goods, their products, because as the advert says, sex sells. And soap opera plot lines and chat show discussions and reality TV programs, movie scripts, novels, song lyrics, lifestyle magazines, they all include their fair share of sexual content. That is an understatement. But the messages that they convey, the messages that we hear about this subject are often confusing and bewildering to say the least, or at worst or best, they're mixed, very mixed messages. And our young people are growing up in a situation where we have apparently better sex education than ever before, certainly more explicit. And yet the problem often associated with unplanned pregnancy and STIs is more acute than it has ever been. And the result of of living in this sex-saturated society is mass confusion, according to many, or misinformation overload. And although the so-called sexual revolution was supposed to bring liberty, many would argue that rather than provide a gateway to freedom, It actually has led us through a doorway to slavery. Now, right up front, I think it's important for us to affirm that sex is a God-given gift. And although the church, having been heavily influenced for many years by Greek thinking that sort of said bodies were bad and bodies having sex were worse, Although the church hasn't always been that clear or that comfortable talking about the subject, we are not anti-sex. Sex, we believe, is a good gift, graciously given to us by a loving creator to be enjoyed. But here's the critical and the counter-cultural aspect to what we believe and what the Bible teaches, that it is to be enjoyed 
within a context, within its proper context, and that is marriage. God is pro-sex, but only and always within the secure framework of a married female-male relationship. Take sex out of that God-designed context, which is exactly what adultery does. Take it out of that, and inevitably people get hurt. It is like playing with fire. Whenever uh, I worked with young people, one of the most effective illustrations I used, although not perfect, was to talk about sex like being like fire. That in its right context, for example, in the fireplace in your front room, fire provides warmth. It provides comfort. It provides enjoyment. But you take fire out of that environment and it has the potential to damage and to destroy and to hurt and to harm and to scar. And that's exactly the same with sex. And there's an interesting section in Proverbs that warns against adultery in these terms. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. So extra marital sex, sex outside of marriage, according to God, it's like playing with fire. And God as a loving father, has given us this commandment, again, not to restrict freedom, not to restrict our lives, but in order to protect us from being burnt and from being badly burnt. But as we talk about sex and marriage or sex within marriage, I think it's worth reminding ourselves, well, what is the biblical basis for marriage? And we find that in Genesis 2. Jesus repeats it again in Matthew 19, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And for us and for the church, for those of us who are Christians, these incredibly important and powerful words reveal three aspects or three dimensions of marriage. There is this leaving aspect where two people leave the familiar worlds of their own families and they start a brand new legal and social unit within a community. And there is this uniting aspect that two people are joined together. They are united in life and in every aspect of life. And then there is this becoming one flesh, which obviously does refer to the sexual union, but also indicates this profound mystery that in marriage, two become one. And that is a mystery. And the Bible also talks about marriage being a covenant relationship. And a covenant is, it implies a solemn binding agreement or a promise made between two parties that lasts a lifetime and involves mutual obligations. And adultery is sex outside of that sacred bond. And that's why it is such an issue. It's sex outside of that new, uniting, one flesh covenant relationship. And therefore, in terms of God's word, It is always described as dangerous, as wrong, and actually as utter madness. Again, back to Proverbs 6. A man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. And it is that destructive ability and quality of adultery that is one of the main reasons why this commandment makes so much sense. Adultery is an abuse of two God-given gifts. 
But even setting that fundamental issue aside, the human and the relational cost of adultery is substantial. The trail of brokenness, the devastation that it causes, are extreme. Adultery, and I don't think I'm being overdramatic in using these terms, adultery smashes the deepest and the most intimate levels of trust. It shatters promises. It breaks down the walls of privacy and exclusivity that protect the very heart of marriage. Adultery denies love. It degrades people. It destroys families. It defies marriage. It defies God. Adultery costs. There is a huge cost. And the fallout sexually, psychologically, socially, mentally, spiritually, it's extensive. Now, one of the dangers with this commandment is saying, well, look, I've never actually committed adultery, nor likely to. So how does this, in some ways, relate to me? Well, to start with, it's always unwise to say it could never happen to me about any issue. But because our sexuality is such a powerful force and because of the sexually charged environment that all of us inhabit, we need to be on our guard. Mistakes and compromise in this area have wrecked some of the most unexpected that could never happen to me, people I know. And someone can invest years into their family, to their career. They can earn love, security, respect for many. But in order to enjoy a few moments of sexual gratification, they can throw it all away. And I've seen it happen. Presidents, politicians, princes and preachers have all made the mistake. Sex is not a trivial issue. We may live in a context where it is being trivialized. But it is, it is not. And I think it's also worth saying that, that sexual temptation is very real. But it's not irresistible. God-given desires, and they are God-given. And this is, this is a say why so much more really needs to be said. But they are God-given desires, but they're manageable. Wrong desires can be fought. They can be defeated. Granted, the battle's not, only, not always easy, but it is a lie. It's a myth to think that you will inevitably succumb to temptation in this area. But one of the other reasons why this commandment relates to all of us is found in the unsettling words of Jesus. And I know many of you would expect me to draw attention to this, where in his Sermon on the Mount, he takes us to a whole other all-encompassing level. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And what you find here is Jesus shifts the emphasis from action to desire. And he forces us to examine our thought life. Now, and this, this may seem a relatively controversial thing to say, but now does Jesus say that the look is equally as serious as the physical act? I'm not sure he does. But what he does say is that the lustful look at another man's wife, because he is talking about adultery, or another woman, counts as adultery in our hearts. And unless we take this seriously, what Jesus says, this will affect you to the very core of your being. This will affect who you are. 
And this teaching of Jesus is actually deeply connected to the 10th commandment we looked at a while ago, where God says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. And coveting, as we looked at a few weeks ago, is a wrong desire and a lustful look at another man's wife, at another woman, is exactly that. It is a wrong desire. And therefore, Jesus speaks of it in terms of committing adultery within your heart, in the very core of who you are, in the very core of your being. Adultery, you see, begins on the stage of our imagination long before it plays out in real live action. And Jesus is trying to save us from a lot of heartache by getting us to arrest the sin before it goes from our heads to our hands. From a wrong thought, which, yes, is wrong, to a wrong action, which is not only wrong, but whenever it moves from head to hand, it's now disastrous because so many other people are involved. And that's why I said what I said earlier. I'm not sure Jesus means it is as serious as committing the actual physical act. Yes, it wrecks you spiritually. But whenever it goes from head to hands, it wrecks so many other people's lives. And therefore, it's no wonder that Jesus then goes on as he talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount to use some very provocative and disturbing language as he offers us advice on what we should do in response to this. If your right hand causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And behind and beneath the very graphic imagery that Jesus uses, his advice is relatively simple and straightforward. It is this, take drastic action and undergo some radical spiritual surgery so that you avoid wrecking your life and other people's. And the issue is whatever is feeding your thought life negatively, whatever stimulates your thinking, whatever you're using to stimulate your thinking negatively, get rid of it, walk away from it, turn it off, put it down. You see, God doesn't just look for clean hands, but he wants pure hearts. Now, before I hand over to Jean, let me offer just some thoughts on, well, what happens when someone does break this commandment? And I'm relatively sure that at whatever level, we all know of those who have. And for this, I just want to speak very, very briefly directly out of God's word, which is my only genuine reference point. And one of the most powerful and moving stories in the Gospels is found in John 8. And again, you may have expected me to draw attention to this, but where Jesus is confronted by someone who's caught in adultery. And the guilty woman's dragged before Jesus by this group of religious leaders who are actually more intent on trapping Jesus than they are in dealing with this woman, but that's another issue. But either way, how Jesus deals with this this situation fascinates me because he bends down and he writes in the dust, and I know some people think that what Jesus wrote in the dust was the Ten Commandments. But then he stands up and he says that if anyone's without sin, then they should pick up and throw the first stone. And then he bends back down and he starts writing again. And not surprisingly, no one picks up a stone. In fact, everyone walks away, leaving just Jesus alone again with this woman. And Jesus then stands up and he says, where where is everyone gone? And does no one condemn you? And she replies, no one, sir. And then we read these words. 
then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And two things. See, the only person who could have thrown a stone was Jesus. He's the only person without sin. And yet, instead, Jesus shows mercy. But secondly, Jesus told her to turn away from her sin. Jesus holds out mercy, plus he issues a call to repentance. And Jesus doesn't condemn her, but he doesn't condone her choices. She needs to confess her sin. She needs to walk away from it. She needs to lay her behavior down. And one of the most notorious adulterers in the Bible is David. And whenever he was confronted about his sin by a holy man of God and rebuked, David confessed and he repented and he wrote Psalm 51 in response, which is a model of repentance for those who find themselves caught up in the aftermath of sexual sin. And what we discover is that God deals with us lovingly. He deals with us in mercy. But those who commit adultery must turn their backs on the practice. They must, like David, admit it, confess it, repent of it, and by the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, commit to sin no more. And so how we actually respond to people and deal with people who do break this commandment is incredibly important. And Jesus provides the model. Now, having some, spent some time, I realized, talking about it maybe from a relatively negative perspective, just felt it was important to actually positively affirm marriage and how we can go about protecting it. And so Jean is going to come and share that now. Well, I just want to talk a little, very briefly about affair-proofing your relationship. And because of time tonight, as David has said, we can only just touch very briefly uh, on this topic. also have to confess that any pictures of weddings that appear are of my daughter's wedding. I, it's an excuse to still look at her wedding pictures. <clears throat> but if we're going to affair-proof our relationships, there are five R's that I think we need to think about And the first one is respect. Now, in Colossians 4, we're told, let your speech be always with grace. In Proverbs, we're told, a gentle, whoops. Okay, get used to this little machine, right? In Proverbs, we're told, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And so respect, one of the many ways in which we can show respect to each other is by our words, how we speak to each other. And I'd like to just us to think about the importance of affirmation in our speech to each other. The story is told of a couple who, on their 50th wedding anniversary, were, you know, having all the press in to interview them, and they were being asked about, uh, you know, what, what made their marriage so successful, and how did they manage to, to reach their 50th wedding anniversary? And the gentleman pulled an old watch out of his waistcoat pocket, and you know one of these old-style watches that has a cover over the face? And he opened the face of this watch and showed it to the journalist that was interviewing him. And across the front of the face of the watch were written the words, 
say something nice to Sarah. And he said, my father-in-law gave me that watch the day we were married. And so ever since, every time he looked at the time, he was reminded to say something nice to Sarah. And it obviously had worked for them. But you know, when we get into the habit of criticism in our relationships, a relationship can very quickly wither and die. But if we get into the habit of affirming each other and building each other up and speaking with grace and with gentleness, then those are the kind of relationships that grow and flourish. Now, I know in Northern Ireland, it's much easier for us to be negative than positive. In fact, we get a bit embarrassed even about saying something nice to someone and thanking them for something that they do for us. It's much easier to point out all the things that they've done wrong. Just take note of yourself during the day tomorrow. And think how many times you're tempted to say something negative and how many times you actually say something affirming and positive and upbuilding to your marriage partner. Just try it. Because those affirming relationships are the relationships that don't break up. Second R is responsibility. We all need to take responsibility for our actions. We need to take responsibility when we do things that are wrong, as we all do. What do we do when something has gone wrong? Well, three A's. We need to admit that we're wrong. We need to apologize for the hurt that's caused. And we need to alter our behavior. Three A's. You know, we're told in Ephesians 4, in your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Some people have interpreted this by saying, um, don't go to bed angry, stay up and fight. (laughs) Now, however you interpret it, you do need to talk things through. But we should all expect conflict in a relationship. Um, it's, you know, it's a mistake to think that there should never be conflict because we're all different people with different opinions and that's a healthy thing. And it has been said when two people agree on everything, then one of them is redundant. So we, we do have conflict, we do think differently, but it's how we resolve that conflict that's the important thing. And so these three A's are very important. Forgiveness is a choice. And unless a husband and wife forgive each other every day, then a relationship can become an empty shell. We have to be constantly forgiving each other. Someone as eminent as Martin Luther King actually said, forgiveness is not just an occasional act, it's a permanent attitude. And that's true in all our relationships, not just our marriage relationships. We need to have this permanent attitude of forgiveness. A good marriage needs two givers and two forgivers. So that's responsibility. Then we need to relate to each other. And I really would recommend this book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. I don't know how many of you have read this book, but it's a great book on this whole idea of relating to each other. And he talks about how each of us has a favorite language in which uh, we feel loved. And we can show our love in five different ways. He says we can show them by words, by gifts, by time, spending time, by touch, and by acts of service. But you will probably have a different love language 
than your partner. And you might feel loved if you receive a gift, but chances are they will feel loved in some other way, perhaps by acts of service or something else. And so it's worth taking some time to think this through. What makes me feel loved? And what what makes my husband or wife feel loved? And it actually takes just a little bit of time and bother to think, how do we relate to each other in the most meaningful way? In the book Captain Crenley's Mandolin, uh, Dr. Janus cures an old man uh, called Stomatus of deafness by removing a pea from his ear. But sometime later, Stomatus returns to the doctor and he asks him to put the pea back in his ear because he says he can't stand his wife's nagging. Now, Dr. Janus thinks that's against the Hippocratic Oath. He can't put the, the pea back in the man's ear. But he says, I have a different solution. He says, be nice to her. Just bring in the wood before she asks for it. And bring her a flower every time you come back from the field. If it's cold, put a shawl round her shoulders. And if it's hot, bring her a glass of water. It's simple. And you know, it is simple for us to relate to each other, but sometimes it's so simple that we miss it. Those simple acts of kindness that help us to relate to each other. So just be conscious of that relating. Then there's romance. You know, sometimes when older couples are interviewed about why their relationship has lasted over the years, people have said, we kept the romance alive. Now, if you ask any woman what she would like to change about her marriage or her husband, chances are, nine out of ten times, the woman will say, I wish he was more romantic. I wish he would hold my hand sometimes when we're out together instead of walking two paces ahead. I wish he would hug me sometimes in a non-sexual way just to show that he cares. If you ask a man what he would like to change about his relationship or about his wife, chances are nine times out of ten he will say, I wish my my wife was more interested in sex. So I think, just thinking back to what we were talking about in the preceding section about relating to each other, I think it's very good for us, even in this area of romance and the physical side of our marriage, to be conscious of each other's needs and to keep the romantic and the physical side of marriage alive. Because as David said, sex is God's idea. Elaine Storkey said, A couple in marriage is called to worship God as much by their truthful erotic sex as by their prayers for each other. So there's a recommendation for you. So romance in marriage is important. And then the final R, resolve. When we make our marriage vows, we're saying that we're truly committed to each other for life. We're saying, I choose to love you. Whatever happens, however I feel, whoever I meet, whenever we have problems, whether or not I feel in love, I choose to love you and choose is the important word there. Because we all have a choice in this matter. And it's a daily choice to go on making that commitment to each other. So, respect, responsibility, 
relating to each other, romance, resolving. All of these are important. But it's a life work. It's a life work that some scarcely begin and only a minority ever fully achieve. But with God's help, we can make a good marriage better. And I think that's the important thing. Not to just feel that, okay, we're married, now we get on with the rest of our lives. But to be making a conscious effort in the light of all that's been said this evening to make our marriages better. God has given us this great blessing. Let's make the most of it. Resolve with God's help to have the marriage relationship that he has designed for you. I said, just as I started to speak, that I recognized there would be so much we wouldn't say. And I also felt it was important to say that whenever you come to a commandment this that does deal with the issue of sex and marriage, that there will be some people say, but what about people who are and describe people in a different way? And I, I wrestled with this and thought, I don't want to stand up and make some patronizing token comment about any other issues because I just think that the actual commandment forces us to look at these issues. And therefore tonight, I hope you will understand if you go away thinking, but he didn't mention this issue. I hope you will understand why not. Just in the silence, chance to respond, reflect. What is it that feeds your thought life? Maybe just take a moment in the silence to pray for those you know who have been hurt through adultery. How do you strike the balance between not condemning and not condoning? And if appropriate, is there an hour that you need to work on. Just take a moment's silence and then we're going to f- sing a final song as we close. <laughs>